Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Claire Patricia Riding and I'm delighted to be joined today by my Erwin Mitchell colleague and all-round planning expert Nicola Gooch and Victoria Hutton who is an expert planning and environmental barrister from 39 Essex Chambers. Um, a quick note on Victoria, um, she is consistently raised as one of the leading juniors at the planning and environmental bar and I'm also delighted to say that in a virtual sense anyway, I'm surrounded by women of influence um, as both Nicola and Victoria have been included in the planners women of influence list. So congratulations both. <laughs> I think this is the first time that I've had you both on a call, so um, I can say that. Um, welcome Nicola and Victoria and thank you for joining me to discuss one of the hot topics in the development sector at the moment. Um, and that is how we deal with the Supreme Court's judgment in the Hillside case. We'll go on to talk about why this case is so important and the implications of the decision in a little moment, in a little while. But before we do, a little introduction to the case. Um, so I, when I was writing up the notes for this podcast, started doing it in a fairy tale uh, <laughs> manner. So once upon a a time in a land not so far away, being Snowdonia National Park, a planning permission was granted for 401 dwellings. This was to be developed in accordance with the agreed master plan, which showed where all the pretty little houses and the roads were to, build, to be were to be built. Over the years, several other planning permissions had come along and been granted for different parts of the overall site, but all but two of them had been implemented. The question the Supreme Court faced was, could the original planning permission still be implemented and grant the wishes of this developer? Victoria, coming to you first, what happened after that? What did the Supreme Court do? Yeah, Claire, thank you so much for, for having me on on this um, hugely topical uh, subject, which has clearly rocked the industry and, and we'll, we'll get on to some of the issues. But you've asked me, what did the Supreme Court do? Well, I don't think we need to give a spoiler alert here because, well, the industry, uh, well, unless you've been living under a rock for the past uh, few months, you'll know that the court held that the planning permission could not continue to be built out. So uh, we'll go on, I think, to deal with a bit of the detail in the judgment later. But if I just introduce some of the court's reasoning. What the court did is it upheld a long-standing principle called the Pilkington principle, which relates to overlapping and inconsistent planning permissions. And the, the sort of simple proposition is that where you have two overlapping and inconsistent, materially inconsistent planning permissions, you cannot simultaneously rely on both. So you can't mix and match uh, your planning permission. So what does that mean? Well, it means in practice, if you start to build out a site under a, let's say, a large planning permission for something like 400 houses, and then you implement a materially inconsistent permission in one part of the site, you cannot then continue to rely upon the original permission. So the Supreme Court set out the principle as follows, and I'll, I'll just read out a little excerpt from the judgment. A planning permission does not authorise development if and when, as a result of physical alteration of the land to which the permission relates, it becomes physically impossible to carry out the development for which the permission was granted, in brackets, without a further grant of planning permission. An important point is, for example, under our, the, the 400 home example I gave, if you've already started to build out your underlying permission, the Supreme Court confirmed that that which you have already built out will remain lawful even if you lose the benefit 
of the permission going forward. And then perhaps finally, just by way of introduction, it's worth introducing a concept, a potential concept of severability, because uh, the Supreme Court, as part of its reasoning, addressed an argument uh, made in relation to uh, severability. And this is whether a permission can effectively be divided into component parts, which one can sort of take out and replace, i.e. put in a drop-in application, perhaps over one part. The court said it's a matter of interpretation as to whether a permission authorises a number of independent acts of development, each of which is separately permitted, or whether it is to be construed as a single scheme. In granting a multi-unit development scheme, so we're talking about, for example, a large uh, housing or mixed-use scheme, absent any clear indication, the local planning authority cannot be taken to authorise the developer to combine building only part of the proposed development with building something different from and inconsistent with the approved scheme on another part of the site. And so what the court was doing was it was confirming uh, that a long-standing judgment in a case called Lucas was wrongly decided. And in Lucas, what the court had found was that a planning permission for a number of houses could be interpreted as a grant of independent permissions for each house uh, and the court said that was wrong. So although the court found that was wrong it does seem to have left open the door for lawyers like all of us to argue that it's possible that a permission could uh, allow for parts to be severable and I'm sure we'll come on to uh, the extent to that and the uncertainties uh, that surround it. Thank you for that. Um, so, in, clearly, this has repercussions not just for the residential sector, but sort of any larger scheme where you do have uh, drop-ins and variations um, over the years. So, Nicola, coming to you then. So, what is the significance of this, and what what are our our clients then the sector saying um, in relation um, to Hillside? So, it depends on who you ask and where you ask them and what's happening because um, everyone's feeling this slightly differently. It is causing the biggest headaches on long-standing strategic sites. So things which started being built out two or three or four or five years ago, um, the very large master-planned garden villages or something, along those lines where drop-ins have been a regular feature of dealing with design issues, replanning, uh, the fact that you've got multiple developers on the same site all doing different things at different times. Um, in those situations, Hillside is becoming a problem, um, a real problem for dealing with the flexibility that you need to do to, to bring forward such large sites, which where the planning permission covers such a large um, scheme, which takes so long to come forward. Um, it's also <laughs> proving to be a real headache for property lawyers and planning lawyers who do due diligence on purchase of phases. Um, so if you've got somebody who's buying a phase or a subphase of one of these large strategic sites um, and the site got going before Hillside, before the Court of Appeal decision, before, before the Supreme Court decision, then um, there are a lot of us who are having to spend an awful lot of time analysing what's previously gone onto the site and trying to get hold of plans to try and figure out if these previous permissions are actually physically incompatible or not. Um, 
and then going and trying to figure out to the extent that they are whether or not that is material and we'll come on to materiality in a minute and whether or not it's severable so for things that are already on site and already being built and already underway it is causing a huge headache in practical terms um, and that's before we get on to the sill of it all, which I know is a question later. Um, so I will I will not jump ahead on that, but that is not fun either. Um, for smaller schemes, for things that are only one or 200 units, um, where it's all getting built out in one go, or it's all in the same development ownership, being built out by the same developer, it's less of an issue. Um, for things that are coming forward now, for new applications, we are looking at trying to feature-proof as best we can, um, ensure severability as best we can, building flexibility as best we can. That's a slightly different issue, um, and it is more manageable because you are looking forward. Um, the biggest headaches are looking backwards. Uh, for example, if you've got a scheme that was consented and built out, um, or started being built out, say, five years ago, where the local centre units are going to have to change because there isn't demand for what was there previously um, or the consent was submitted before class E became a thing so that they aren't class E units um, or this happens quite a lot where you want to swap out um, a phase of say for example residential or, or a hotel and put um, a retirement living community or something in in its place those types of changes on schemes that are on the are coming out of the ground already that's where it is the biggest problem that is where the impacts are being most immediately felt and that's where it's hurting everybody um, local authorities developers the uncertainty around those schemes at the moment is is just unhelpful thank you for that so it feels like we've got a new three word slogan coming up which is materiality separability and compatibility so <laughs> Um, so just moving on to these then, um, and a question for both of you really is, um, and I don't know whether you want to take these points in turn, um, but what does what is materiality, severability and compatibility? I know that we've already touched upon some of these um, phrases already, um, but what do, what do they mean going forward in light of hillsides? So I think necessarily that we might have combined these this catchy three word slogan before until now. Uh, Tora, do you want to start with materiality? Because that's probably the biggest grey area of them all, um, because my reading of it includes quite a lot of local authority discretion. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I absolutely would. I mean, the, the point that the Supreme Court made is that what this isn't doing is saying things uh, there's a, there's a very rigid rule and everything has to be absolutely compatible with everything else. The question is whether something is materially incompatible or not. And the Supreme Court drew um, comparison with Section 96A of the Town and Country Planning Act, which of course allows a local authority uh, to grant non-material amendments to a scheme. So it seems to be that there is this sort of grey area, which is up to the judgment of a decision maker to decide whether or not, looking at the whole, the, the, the scheme as a whole, uh, whether something is or is not materially incompatible. Having, having said that, I think there will be some indicators where something is incompatible. Uh, for example, if it's going to make a description, a change in the description of development, I think um, you'd be hard pressed to argue that that's not a material incompatibility 
uh, particularly given um, the litigation over 96A and Section 73, etc. I would also be considering what is the the potential difference in environmental impacts, uh, for example. And generally, well, I mean, it's all a matter of judgment for the decision maker. But I think it's it's one of those things where uh, things that are material should be fairly clear. There will be a clear case for not material, and then there'll be a grey area in between, which uh, all of us will be paid to argue about, no doubt. Um, Nicola, is that is that what you've um, experienced? Yes, I think materiality in the cons in the um context of the scheme as a whole is currently doing quite a lot of heavy lifting there is I've seen it used in a variety of ways and it, it really does depend on context uh, the larger the scheme the greater the scope there is that changes are not material in the grand concept of it uh, but we are operating in in the slight wild west of litigation here we, we don't know um, and it is really fascinating. One thing I did want to ask you, because I've been mulling this just in the back of my head for the last um, week or two, and I haven't really come to a firm view. So since we are on a podcast talking about Hillside, I thought I'd, I'd throw it in there. Um, did you see the recent Section 73 case about how it's actually about um, changing conditions and minor materiality is not a thing anymore? How do you think that plays into this? Because the scope of Section 73 and Hillside, I'm seeing coming under quite a lot of debate at the moment. And I think this has the potential to, to open that debate out a bit further. Yes, I can. Um, I mean, I can see, I think it was the Armstrong case, wasn't it? Which was um, yeah. judgment of James Strawn uh, sitting as a deputy high court judge. And what, just to introduce that case, <laughs> what James did, and a bit like Hillside, is that these are two cases where the court actually hasn't changed the law at all, but they've hit the headlines because um, sort of industry norms, which have been going on under the surface. So, for example, in symmetry, the industry norm has been uh, dropping applications over large schemes um, without too much concern for the Pilkington principle. And the Supreme Court said, hang on, no, the law has always been that you can't have overlapping and consistent permissions. And then Section 73, the Section 73 Armstrong case, was, it was a brilliant judgment. It sets out very clearly and coherently um, that Section 73 is about the amendment of conditions. There's no additional layer of test about materi materiality or non-materiality, contrary, in fact, to what the PPG had indicated. So... <laughs> Um, but again, that was sort of always the law, if one looks at the statute and one understands the, the cases that went before it. But again, uh, because local authorities were in practice, and in that case, the local authority had in practice applied a, a, a materiality test to the Section 73 application, it has sort of rocked the industry. So the question is, well, do, do all these things interlink? And I, I think they do, I, for the reason that, well, the, the Supreme Court itself had linked this materiality test with Section 96A. And in planning law, we have this sort of complicated situation where um, it's meant to be this comprehensive code. And to an extent, planning is. And it, it's all meant to be there in the Town and Country Planning Act, various uh, other acts and statutory instruments. But there are instances where the court will have to intervene. And one of them is, is overlapping planning permissions. 
but it's never going to the court I think is going to be very careful not to go roam too far from the statute and it will always take as its starting point well what can you do under the statute and we know that the town and country planning act regime has very limited um, opportunities for amending planning permissions and those are broadly section 73 and, and section 96a section 73a as well so I think um, I mean that's a very long way of asking a question which I'm answering a question which I've now forgotten but only that really one has to be very careful when you're looking at this to view it in the statutory context recognizing that the courts aren't going to in all likelihood veer very far from that and I'd, I'd underlie that in particular in relation to this Supreme Court who you know if this kind of issue to go up there again and we had the same composition of the court um, I don't think we can be expecting very bold decisions which roam too far from the law as it is at present um, for one we don't have a specialist planning judge on the court at the moment so anyway I hope that was <laughs> some relevant thoughts in there somewhere. So where I think this leaves us, tying us back to our catchy three word slogan, I think this leads us to a test where things that are not material in the context of the scheme as a whole don't engage Pilkenting and therefore Hillside. Things that can be dealt with under Section 73 will give you two overlapping permissions, but one of them is a Section 73 permission, which you can then continue to build out under, which will also cover what was allowed under the previous one. So you have overlapping permissions, but it doesn't really matter, providing that what you're doing ties to changes to conditions and your Section 73 covers the relevant outline or original permission that you want to, and you're not trying to build out under the original and the Section 73 at the same time, which would be a weird thing to do because that's the whole point of Section 73s. And then you've got Section 96A, which again, is covered twice because it's not material so you can either use it to amend the permission and hillside isn't engaged or it's not material so hillside and pilkenden isn't engaged this then leads us on so we've got those those options available to us which should avoid the worst of the problems the issue is then what you do when you're straying outside of those um and the issue is well, the question is really can you and to what extent now if you don't have physical incompatibility, then yes, you can still do drop-ins. So I think one of the positions where, and this brings us on to compatibility, where I have and probably still use them, is where you have an outline, um, and I've done this a couple of times actually, an outline permission where some of the phases are distinct elements where the operator wants to get on and build faster. So, for example, you've got a discount supermarket as a standalone phase and a, a hotel as a standalone phase. And those people want to come and get, get on and build ASAP. So rather than put in reserved matters under the outline, they at the same time as the outline goes in, the standalone permissions for those phases for what is already in those phases under the master plan. Um, where it is not incompatible it is a duplication and it's a deliberate duplication because the people who are in control of those phases want to be in control of their own planning. Now, you're going to have to be more careful about tying them in contractually to make sure that they don't extend beyond. But for a pure outline, actually, there's not that much to extend beyond. You're just looking at a potential parameter plan which has hotel or supermarket written on it. 
so there I can still see going. Um, if you're you have successfully cleared complete blank space, there is a hole now <laughs> in your original permission into which something can be put in which is not physically incompatible. Then, then that is still an option, but that is in practice quite hard to do, I think. Um, or at least you've got to be very, very careful about doing it. And this is a Pilkington point which has been around for a while, um, which actually to, uh, you'll have seen, you'll have advised more on this in practice than I have. I, I'm mostly looking at it in a, is there, are these two things, do they actually physically fit together? Are they compatible? Have you actually genuinely carved out that white space underneath it? And how have you done it? Um, I know, Tori, you've been advising on this recently as well. So how do you see that playing out now that everyone is more aware of, of the risks involved? Well, I, I mean, there's a few things to say. I mean, in terms of the sort of white space argument, I mean, it's quite useful to look at the facts, perhaps, of the Pilkington case itself, um, because there, Mr Pilkington had a planning permission for a dwelling on a, uh, a bungalow on a plot of land, and he later found that an earlier planning permission had been granted uh, for a dwelling on the, another part of that plot. But the earlier permission was for a dwelling and small holding. Now, the question was, could Mr Pilkington build out two dwellings or was he limited to one? And ultimately, well, the court said that he he's limited to one because it wasn't possible to have uh, a dwelling on the area that was a small holding. So I think it's important to recognise, well, is, is blank space ever really blank space? Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think I, I've seen a uh, large um, site with a phase, for example, completely blanked out. I think if you were to try and do that, I think that would uh, bring some issues in terms of assessment. Um, you've got to presume these these types of schemes are almost always going to be EIA. Um, so how do you assess something which you say, well, we're not going to define the parameters of? I mean, in practical terms, you're going to have to define the parameters in order to be able to assess uh, the impacts. And I think you run a risk um, there of, of, well, your conditions would have to be tailored to what you had assessed in a sort of Rochdale envelope type approach. So, um, so yes, I, I, I'm. I, I think well, the whole thing is fraught with a number of risks uh, in terms of uh, later litigation. Um, which, so I don't know if that is a sort of suitable point to take us on to discussing severability um, and whether okay, set aside you've got a blanked out area of the site, which you'd have to also question, why don't you just simply not include it in the red line uh, and come back later? Because really, what are you asking for? But the other question is, well, you've got an area within your red line. Can you draft your permission uh, such that it is effectively severable? And by that, I mean that you come along with a later drop-in application and that application could be granted and the permission implemented without risking 
um, the inability to build out the rest of your development. And I think that's going to be the big question uh, that will come up before the courts um, in, in the next few years. Um, Nick, I don't know if you want to have some initial thoughts and I'll have a go or um, so, I think we can all point out the risks. <laughs> so I think we're going to have to get to the point where for some consents you can because we do have some permissions which are largely outline and because of the way that the difficulties around flexibility are going, outline permissions are becoming more and more common. And this will lead us on to Toddington in a moment, which I know we're both aware of and we'll pick that up in a second. But if you have an outline permission where your reserve matters have not gone in yet um, and the reserve matters are extensive, then there is a point where you don't know the full details of what's going to happen in that phase. You might have a, a general master plan, but if you put in a drop in, which is generally in accordance with that. So if you're swapping residential for a different form of residential, for example. Um, or you're swapping one type of. Community use for a different type of commercial, for example, which doesn't fall within class E. I think there does need to be scope for those types of changes or um, swapping a retirement living community for a hotel or, or vice versa, those types of things. I think that there needs to be a way of doing that, which doesn't involve going back in and, and reapplying for everything. Um, and severability may be a way of doing that. And I know that there are people who are, are trying to, to do that through the use of conditions and outline and informatives and express consent at the start. That severability is a thing moving forward. I think trying to retrospectively impose severability is a lot harder. But I think with new consents, it, it is something which must be possible if it is. Because, again, you, you're not under an, uh, permission or an obligation to, to build out the entirety of a planning permission. But I'm approaching this from a practical perspective <laughs> um, as opposed to a strictly legal one. And I think we're going to have to find a way one way or another to get to that point whether or not we've necessarily got the tools to do so right now is is up for debate. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think I'd agree with that. I think it's not a, a hard practical sell to say that <laughs> actually the industry needs that level of flexibility. But with my sort of strictly legal hat on, uh, I can see there being some difficulty in how this plays out. I mean, the, the first, I think, introductory point is that the Supreme Court seems to indicate that it might be possible for the permission to explicitly state that parts are severable and thereby not run into uh, what we can call the hillside or Pilkington issue. But it doesn't go any further than that. Uh, its comments are on the issue, in my view, obiter, um, which means that they wouldn't be binding, although they would be highly persuasive in relation to future litigation. They also haven't considered all of the issues. And I mean, one that I pointed to earlier was, for example, EIA. So if an applicant comes to a local authority with a proposal that certain parts are severable, such that something materially different, it's envisaged that something materially different could come forward later, they might be backed by the argument, well, how can you assess it? properly? 
how can you set down your, your Rochdale envelope and um, ensure that those consulted understand what the impacts of this are likely to be and then meaningful, meaningfully give a view. The contrary argument to that would be, well, we can assess this permission based upon on the master plan we've produced, and if anything materially different comes along later, then it will be assessed uh, under the EIA regulations. And so I think those are two arguments that I think we'll see play out. Uh, I think there's also an argument, and I think there's, so that, that's the sort of difficulty of envisaging what might come in the future. I think that that is going to play out in court. In terms of retrospectively um, making something severable, I think I'd agree with you. I think just simply adding a condition to say, well, this part is severable via, for example, a 96A application would be very difficult to do. For one thing, you are, you are admitting that what might come forward is going to be materially different. And therefore, how on earth can it be an, a non-material, a non-material amendment? However, there may be circumstances. Again, I don't know. We'll have to see it play out. There may be circumstances where one could do a rather more nuanced amendment to the conditions via 96A, which allowed for some form of flexibility, albeit not entirely flexible, which was driven at trying to make uh, a part of a permission severable. But I think these are all these are all issues which we're going to see play out in the courts, and I think it, you know, it's not just going to stop at the High Court or go up further. Good, great news for barristers, terrible news for clients. So I think I think the point at this stage is one has to recognise the risks involved in uh, drafting conditions and permissions, um, and then and then move forward from there. Speaking of risks. And sorry, Claire, I know you have a plan for this. So I just I think now might be a good time to speak of something that I didn't I have to admit I did not see coming, um, which was the planning inspector's decision in Toddington. I think you might have seen this one coming, Tora. That particular appeal. I've I've got it. Here it is. So for anyone who's listening to this who wants to read the Toddington appeal, the appeal reference number, I'll just give you the last digits because they're the ones you need for the appeal finder. It's three three zero four one six eight. It's three three zero four one six eight at land north of Toddington Lane. This is one where a planning inspector refused a drop-in permission because of its potential impact on the wider outline. And it's an interesting one because the development in question uh, was an outline application with all matters reserved. Um, so. And it was a phased outline application with all matters reserved, I understand. So this is one where at first glance, the the hillside issue should have been easier to get around. Um, and instead, the planning inspectorate took a very firm view, I think possibly because the developer of the wider site was objecting to the appeal that he couldn't allow the drop in to go ahead because of its potential impact on the, the surrounding site. Tora, I was wondering what your thoughts on, on this particular appeal decision were. Right, I mean, I, to my mind, it wasn't not terribly surprising. I mean, the, the inspector, Hillside, the Hillside element of it was one one part of the inspector's reasoning. He also found lack of compliance with policy. But as, as you say, uh, Simon were objecting on the basis of the Hillside point. What, what there was was a um, a large urban extension 
uh, in the area of, I think it was Arran District Council. And this developer came forward with a drop-in application on an area of the site, which within the master plan uh, was for, I think it was non-residential uses, but it was coming forward with a 71 home scheme. And the Simon, uh, who were developing at least some of the rest of the site, objected on the basis, well, if this is granted and thereafter implemented, it puts at risk uh, our ability to build out the rest of the mission. So on the face of it, this is a classic hillside, Pilkington, um, you know, the application of those principles. So to my mind, not, not a terribly uh, surprising decision. Of course, I don't I don't have the outline in front of me exactly what the conditions said um, and exactly what the master plan, plan showed. But um, I think well, I think actually we're probably unlikely to see many more of these decisions because I think going on behind the scenes, people will be pulling out of appeals or uh, not continuing with with applications of this kind. Yeah, Nicola, how, how about you? What, what were your thoughts on this? My immediate thought was I wanted to see the original permission in the master plan and it did actually bind in the entirety of the site and it was not a phased condition so I think if it had been slightly more carefully if the if it had been intended to be severable it wouldn't have been dealt with in in that way it would and that that's basically the finding the master plan itself wasn't severable because of the way that it was dealt with and conditioned. Um, I I will be in, uh, interested to know if this is is going to a statutory review and it's, it's out of time now so it either is or it isn't um, and I, I haven't heard if it's going to be appealed or not um, but it, it's this type of decision which I think will give rise to the first type of kind of litigation on this particular point. I think it's a fascinating one, absolutely fascinating one because the reason for the refusal wasn't necessary it wasn't actually about the appeal decision itself um now there were policy issues as well and if it hadn't gone down on those uh, it would be interesting to see if if the same hillside decision would have been made or not it might have been but yeah it it, it just really really caught my attention uh because a lot of the initial reaction uh to the hillside judgment was that outline permissions would be safer than full ones and phased permissions would be more flexible than unphased ones and this is the first indication admittedly quite a stark case but the first indication that that might not actually be the case and this may actually extend a lot further than full detailed planning permissions which is what a lot of the initial gut reaction to hillside seemed to be i i think you make a good point that the, the key point about this is the interpretation of the uh, of the planning permission uh, of the outline and really that goes to whether something is consistent or inconsistent as opposed to whether Pilkington applies or does not apply and the the case I'd highlight here is the case of Swire which was uh, a judgment that Mr Justice Holgate um, last year where uh, the issue surrounded whether something had to be in accordance with a master plan or not, because the, the phrase in the condition was in accordance with. 
And Mr Justice Holgate said, well, actually, on, on the face of that permission, in accordance with, didn't mean in strict accordance with, it was as a matter of judgment. So I think a lot of this, um, the thought that goes into this is going to be about construing the wider permission. What does it require? And, and in fact, we're going back really, that goes back really to materiality is something materially different. Is it compatible or not? Um, and that will depend upon the proper interpretation of the parent permission. And I'm afraid, again, there's going to be grey areas there. It'll be a matter of judgment. <laughs> oh, well, it's a matter of law for the court. But first off, it'll be a matter for the for the local authority or the inspector to take a view on. Thank you, Tora. So I think one of the other issues that has that's come out of, of how we deal with Hillside um, is the implications that it has to sell. Um, I know that Nicola, we call you the Queen of Sill, uh, Owen Mitchell. Um, uh, so, and you're you're quick off the mark on when Hillside was this when um, the decision came out. You were quick off the mark in terms of just actually assessing some of the implications um, for that. Now, obviously, not every development is subject to sill. Um, depends if your local authority has a sill charging scheme. But for those ones that do, what are the implications? It's a freaking nightmare. <laughs> um, so the issue is that if you aren't using Section 73, where there are specific requirements in the regs, and you aren't using a 96A, which the regs tend to ignore, um, then you are left with the position of a drop-in, which is limited because you've got your chargeable development is just what's in the drop-in or something where you're going back and applying again which I call the the Supreme Court's hillside solution which is this bizarre hybrid replacement planning application which is focusing just on the differences between the two and cross-referring back to the consent that's previously gone in um, which looks quite a lot like the Section 73B solution in, in LERB, which is going to be amended, um, but is basically a reapplication which will be largely retrospective for everything that's already gone on on site and the changes that you want to make. The way that the SIL regs work, that doesn't fit at all, because as soon as you've got a planning permission which incorporates things which have already been built under the SIL regs, then you lose your ability to claim um, demolition discounts because for demolition discounts, the building in question needs to be standing on the day that you get your planning permission and you'll have already knocked it down. You won't be able to get your affordable housing relief, even though your affordable housing is already built and occupied, because that has to be applied for before you get your planning permission um, for the chargeable development and commenced Actually, no, not before you get your um, planning permission, before you commence development. So you have to have made your application and got your decision for affordable housing relief, self-build, um, charitable reliefs, uh, residential annexes before you commence development. And with a retrospective permission, you've already started building. So if you're going in for one of these amended or replacement permissions uh, in a civil charging authority, you are going to be paying a significantly higher level of SIL because you'll have lost your ability to get the demolition discounts, you'll have lost your affordable housing relief um, for everything that you've already built, you'll have lost any other set-offs or reliefs for what you've already been built. 
and you might have timed yourself out of your lawful use exemptions as well because there you're looking at um, a continuous period of active use of six months in the three years ending on the date in which your planning permission first permits development which will be significantly later for the second permission than it was for the first so you will get a significantly higher sill charge and the only way that you can get around that is abatement which means taking what you've already paid and applying it to your new permission but that's not going to help you when your new permit uh, your liability is is so much higher i've been giving this a lot of thought and the only way that I think that you might be able to get around it from a SIL perspective, and this probably wouldn't work for EIA or anything else, is if your amended revised replacement permission was outline and phased, and the bits that you were actually changing were a separate ring fenced phase, which had uh, which were the only bits you then put in your reserve matters for. Um, whether or not that will work in practice, whether or not a local authority would accept it, I do not know. But from a SIL perspective, it's only it's the only way of making sure that your chargeable development is ring fenced to the bits that you're actually changing, because each phase is a separate chargeable development. Otherwise, this is a, a situation which has pretty horrific and expensive SIL consequences because this is not how the SIL regime was designed. SIL doesn't fit on the planning system as it is at the moment particularly neatly, um, whereas this is a new situation which it, it doesn't give any thought to at all, and as a result deals with is particularly ill-suited to responding to. Tora, I'm not sure if you've had to think about this at all. <laughs> um, I was going to give this a giant swerve if I was allowed to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think... Uh, uh, yeah, I think what this reveals is that um, there's room on any site for a lot of very detailed thinking about all of the implications, um, what one's doing. So we're obviously dealing with the terms of the Town and Country Planning Act, Hillside, the impact for EIA, possibly for, for a HABs regs assessment. Um, and then and still as well, and all of that's going to be need to be playing into um, what what may or may not work for any particular uh, development size uh, and what the particular risks are. So, um, Nicola, I agree with you. I mean, at the best of times, the still regs are um, impenetrable and difficult to to work, but particularly when one is laying them on top of something which is. Um, possibly a, an attempt at a, a fudge uh, in order to uh, try and prevent a hillside issue occurring, then then that's even more difficult. So I'm afraid uh, all of this sort of, um, again, it points to more, more lawyers and more litigation, I'm afraid. So I was just about to say, so we've got obviously lots of positivity arising out of <laughs> <laughs> certainly the last few bits of, of our discussion. So um, trying to end then on a positive, obviously uh, we've got the sector um, uh, to both HBF and the LPDF and various house builders and also the Planning Officer Society as well, all calling for um, reforms to help this issue because even from, you know, we're coming at it from a, a, um, a house builders or a development sector, but actually the planning officers are also having to deal with the, the fallout from this as well. So I think a shout out to our um, uh, overworked and overstretched planning officers um, uh, as well um, in this regard. 
So we've obviously got Lerb going through um, the House of Lords at the moment. Uh, we've got Lord Blandsley um, proposing an amendment which is potentially seen as uh, a helpful uh, progression in the discussion in terms of, of uh, Lerb. So just to confirm what that was, that is an amendment to support the continuation of drop-in permissions in large-scale developments while also maintaining the Pilkington principle um, that they must not render the original permission physically impossible. So obviously people are turning their, uh, their minds to it. So let's try and end the podcast on a positive for the sector. Um, Tora, coming to you first then. Um, uh, it's been time for lawyers. <laughs> But um, what's what's some of the the positives that we can end on um, in terms of of what we're seeing in lab and and also the way that we think that there is a way around it? Well, I, I mean, I think it, it's going to depend on whether the politicians really get the issue. I mean, I think that the level of commentary um, on all sides on this point that actually there does need to be a practical solution if. Um, we're not going to run the risk of a number of planning permissions, um, uh, parts of them at least being unable to be built out. So I think that there's a clear case to be made and that's being made. And, um, you know, be, the way to deal with this would be through legislative reform. Um, so I think that's probably, I suppose, the positive up until that point. I'm afraid there's going to be uncertainty I think the one thing we haven't discussed today that, I, that is the obvious point is that, you know, if, if amendments do need to be made to a scheme and, and uh, the plan is for a drop in, then if that is the last phase of a proposal, um, then there's little problem. And that, and that that is one positive that came out of um, the Supreme Court's judgment, which is there was a question mark whether, well, is everything that's gone before lawful or unlawful? And they said, no, it's lawful. So that means if your drop-in application is your last phase, um, that then then that may well be a viable way of amending uh, a large planning permission. Um, so I hope that was positive enough for you. And Nicola? Yeah, I was also going to pick up on the order of build point, um, although that does come with its own questions about how far you need to have got um, before you implement. And I think the answer to that is as finished as humanly possible, please. Um, but there is that. It is an order of build issue, which for smaller schemes probably is helpful. Um, there is a lot of I think what this is going to force in the short term is a lot of very detailed thought through cooperation. So you're not going to that the era in which we could have multiple developers doing their own thing on a site is probably over. Um, we're all going to have to work together a lot more closely on larger scale schemes to make sure that what we're doing is um, compatible and that one person rowing their own canoe doesn't cause issues for everybody else. Um, I would also flag that uh, we are talking largely about planning here. So enforcement periods do come into play. So for a lot of the significantly older sites where this might be an issue, but there are still people building, then we still do have the um, 
enforcement immunity periods for operational development and, and changes of conditions in play. So if something was authorised by a drop-in partway through, then that is something to be, to be factored in if you are some way through the build. Um, so if it's been up and, and on for four years or, or 10 years, depending on what it is, then you can probably draw a line under it. <laughs> um, uh, so there is that as well. Um, but yes, unfortunately, other than that, we are in for a period of creativity, uh, not least because the statutory amendments that are coming through are coming through in LERB or LURA, which is being very, very heavily debated at the moment because of other things that are in it. Um, I can't keep track. Has anyone caught, um, been keeping track of how many amendments in the Lords there currently are? Um, it, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think obviously we're in for, well, certainly for, the, for, certainly for those schemes that um, have been built out where there is a potential um, issue um, in terms of their flexibility, obviously, on that enforcement period. Um, we're just waiting for those to run out. But then obviously it also does come back to whether the local authority does have the appetite to, to um, uh, enforce uh, against a, um, a scheme that's already been built out. But obviously just in the interim, so that the, the sector's going to lose its flexibility and agility. Um, and I think we've already started to see some of the build-out rates um, uh, be um, somewhat tempered um, going forward. But um, anyway, um, that has been a, a very thorough and in-depth discussion about Hillside and the many implications that arise from it. So that's it for today. Thank you to Nicola and Victoria for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Urban Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're using to make sure you don't miss our next episode. Bye and, and Tora, thank you. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really lovely to have you on. Uh, not at all. Thanks for having me. It's been like a sort of hillside therapy session. It has been, hasn't it? <laughs>